Hello, everybody. Look at this. Ready to go. Get this mic situation fixed, which I should have done about 15 minutes ago, but I didn't. Welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com on this Wednesday, the 29th of March, 2017. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Uh, just had a big-ass coffee, so I'm lit and ready to go. Today on the podcast, we'll get to whatever you always want to talk about, which we always do, but I suspect we'll probably focus a little bit more on yesterday's uh, Bellator NYC presser, Bellator News generally. I had a good interview with Scott Coker. It's making some of the rounds. Some of his comments on the Reebok deal, we can get to that. We can get to some of the UFC news that's out there. I believe Flow Combat just reported uh, Fabricio Verdum versus... Alistair Overeem is being targeted for UFC 213, although I have to double-check on that. We can get to things like that. Uh, there is a Bellator event this weekend. Rampage Jackson on the last fight of his Bellator deal, taking on uh, Muhammad Lawal in a rematch. We can get to that. Whatever you want to get to, we can get to. Uh, best place to do that, of course, is going to be on in the comments um, at MMAfighting.com, wherever this video is embedded. And, of course, on Twitter, you can use the hashtag chat rappers. Two very quick, small pieces of housekeeping notes. Number one, if you bought a promotional practice live chat t-shirt, of course, thank you again. They sold out very, very quickly. Uh, the money was delivered this past weekend. It was sent to Columbia for uh, Fundacion Grand Paws, Columbia. And um, and it was I, I walked personally to the Humane Rescue Alliance, and I gave them, uh, just a second here, and I gave them, their money. So thank you. The money was delivered for that. And I want to show you something else here. Um, the money was split 50-50 between the Humane Rescue Alliance and Fundacion Grandpa's Colombia. And I want to show you something. This is the dog that you guys are helping in uh, Bogota. Her name is Florencia. Ready? Check this out. This is something else. See that? See how the hind legs don't work? This was a dog. Look real closely. This was a dog that uh, belonged to some of the gorillas in the jungle, and they were going to just execute her, not not a spite, but because of her medical condition. Her hind legs don't work. And uh, someone said, uh, "I'm traveling to the city tomorrow. Let me just take her with him. Take her with me." They did. They, I mean, this is you know a long trip. Obviously, that actually takes quite a while, but they did it, and they found this person who was going to take care of them. And the woman who does this spends all of her own money to uh, help these dogs. And she has earmarked the money from the T-shirts to help her, which will, I mean, you can't imagine, that, you know, the amount of money we gave goes a long, long way in Colombia. So thank you for that. Also, another bit of housekeeping news, and then we'll get to the show here, I promise. Um, I've been meaning to say it. The guy who did all the designs for it, his name is Judd. He's a designer. And he asked me to plug his Instagram, and I have forgotten to do it this whole time. So I don't want to waste any more time, but this is his Instagram page. Ready? His name is Judd Lively. Uh, guy couldn't be more talented. Follow him now. Th this is the guy you want to pay attention to. You can follow him. It's J-U-D-L-I-V-E-L-Y. He's a designer for a lot of different things. This is his Instagram page. Uh, I will link it in the description box below. I will tweet it out as well. Give this guy a follow, please. Please, please do that. That's all he ever asked. He didn't take a dime uh, to do it. He just asked to get a follow here. So I feel like it's the least we can do. He's only got 313 followers. Let's help him out, y'all. 
This is a really talented guy who did a great thing for everybody. Um, give him a follow. I did. You should too. Okay. With that out of the way, let's get to this podcast, shall we? All right. Okay. Up first. Oh, Jesus. Um, these first questions are getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> Here we go. Luke, the MMA philosopher, would not go that far. Uh, hi, Luke. Based off of your lexicon and the name references that I've heard you use, it appears that you are not at all unfamiliar with the intellectual and philosophical world. Uh, I have a degree in philosophy, which is to say I have a basic familiarity with the uh, philosophy world, but I mean, not, not even a tiny amount of expertise. Not even that. Uh, if this is indeed the case, my question is this. What is your introspective take on MMA from a moral or normative ethics view? Not the aspects of two consenting adults or potential violence mitigations like playing violent video games, but the societal norm of public entertainment via two human beings harming each other for public spectacle. Background, I'm both a hardcore fan and someone working towards my doctorate in philosophy. Very cool. I am finding it harder and harder to justify my involvement as a fan of the sport. Just curious about your take on this conflict. Um... Well, let me just be clear about this. A lot of people have always asked me, oh, did you go to journalism school? Uh, I certainly did not, nor do I recommend that you do, which isn't to say you couldn't get anything out of it. It's just to say if you you really want to focus on something in this world, if you want to work in MMA um, or really any kind of place, you need to work, you need to get some kind of formalized training in the act of writing itself, which you can get in journalism school, but I think you can get in other places as well, um, in addition to some other benefits. And I, may, I double majored. I, I tried to triple the school wouldn't let me, but I double majored in um, philosophy and government, two different ones at the College of William and Mary. And, um, and uh, philosophy was by far my favorite because uh, so uh, way to study because um, it's not about being right or wrong. Th those are truth is actually really quite difficult to come by, but it does allow you to begin to parse your own arguments and, uh, develop a coherent line of thinking and understand intellectual traditions and those help you formulate um, your worldview generally. And, uh, you know, my, my roommate at the time was a, uh, a guy who was pre-med. He's now a radiologist. He's making ridiculous amounts of money. And he used to joke because, you know, philosophy was easy to study. He was like compared to the biology he was doing, which there was some merit to that, of course. But, you know, he used to be like, look, are you reading that book? Or is the book reading you? And sort of mocking what he considered to be pointless philosophical questions. But it's really not what it is. Um, I, I can't recommend enough. The more you study philosophy, the better off your life will be. Now, that being said, how to answer this question. What is your introspective take on MMA from a moral or normative ethics view? All right. Well, let me see if I can stumble through this a little bit. Um, if we are talking normative ethics, we are talking about things like... Um, Someone's character, someone's intentions, the consequences of an act, the nature of an act itself, um, things like that. If that is the case, and we're not talking about sort of the two consenting adult arguments, then what I would say to your question is, and this uh, inevitably, whatever road you pick will be fraught with some kind of challenge to it. But I take a more, uh, I guess, what I would consider consequentialist view. If we're talking normative ethics, and I would say something along the lines of um, back in 2012 when I was on MMA Uncensored, I got the chance to go to the 
um, State House in Albany. This is, of course, long before MMA had been legalized. And I got to speak to several of the state legislators. And I forget, God, I forget the guy who it was. It actually made it to air. Um, but I asked him, he made, he made these claims that, like, if we allow this, this will cause harm to our local communities by virtue of an increase in crime or, you know, some other kind of societal ill. And I asked him, you know, it's, it's already legal in many places. There's no real way to indicate that this has led to anything that you're describing. There's quite literally no evidence for that. So I asked him, like, where are these communities who've been blighted by mixed martial arts? Where, where can you point, point to and demonstrate that the legalization of this has led to some kind of way in which to quantify um, the decay of our moral and social fabric? And of course he couldn't. In fact, his answer was, well, you're talking about something else. No, I'm talking about the root of the issue. If you have objections to it because, uh, who knows, you think that it is uh, unsafe despite whatever the safety record is, or you just don't like it, or um, maybe there's some sort of different kind of moral examination you can make of it, then we can have that debate. But if you're making a claim that this causes harm to community, you need to be able to demonstrate that claim. Right, you have to you have to actually be able to find some. You have to marshal some kind of evidence for that, and then you have to be able to say there is not merely correlation here, but causation. And they, don't, they not only is there no evidence to even put together co uh, correlation. Of course, causation is even further down the road. So I think that's the argument that I would make. Is I, I don't. You know, and there's probably other ones you can make to challenge that, including just the general consequentialist line of argument. Right, it's a sort of a utilitarian argument. Um, as I understand it. And in any case, um, all, all I'm pointing is for me, if, if I, you're asking me what is so bad about it, you should be able to demonstrate. And perhaps there are ways in which it is bad that aren't so easily quantifiable, that the fraying of that fabric that we presume to exist is uh, a little bit harder to detect than the naked eye can show, or that can be you know readily available to you. And perhaps it is a very slow and steady creep that it is not immediate. Maybe there is something to this hunch by this state legislator. Perhaps that is so. All I'm simply saying is at the current juncture, from a consequentialist point of view, there isn't really any evidence to suggest that this is causing some kind of um, problem in any measurable way that I'm aware of. So that's probably the best answer I could give at this point, like this at this juncture. Well, says also, um, I would like to know your opinion on how realistic our expectations are when it comes to learning martial arts for self-defense. Good question, actually. I am pretty sure that the average-sized woman who has decent martial arts skills could do some damage to a male assailant who is unskilled in martial arts and not much bigger than she is and not extremely aggressive. However, I'm also uh, sure that the average-sized or even bantamweight-sized man who was hell-bent on punching her head off, could do so if he wanted to. I agree. So to Amanda Nunes or Chris Cyborg, whether he had martial arts training or not. It's a little more complicated there, but, but to your average person on the street, certainly. Therefore, my question would be, A, are my assumptions correct? Largely, not entirely. And B, at what point does the size or strength of the opponent render martial arts skills useless? It depends on the size, it depends on the size disparity, and it depends on the, depends on the skill level. Really, that is the answer there. But to your point, um, I talk about it all the time because it's just, it's maybe one of the better things that The Onion has ever written. They did an article, it's like, 
man on the street overestimates fighting ability by like 5,000%, you know, uh, and it's true. Like the average person grossly overestimates their ability to handle themselves in a physically alter uh, in a physical altercation. They have no idea what they're talking about. If you haven't, it takes a long time to get good at defending yourself. Like just, just to understand the hierarchy here, it's one thing to know how to defend yourself. It's another to know how to defend yourself to the point where you can now fight for sport. And then it's quite another level to say, I can fight for sport so well, I can do it for money. Um, the, the, these are sort of the levels here. To get good enough to defend yourselves in a lot of different street scenarios uh, really, of course, depends on a number of factors. But I would say it takes years to get good at something like that. But the truth is that doesn't render martial arts training meaningless unless you have years under your belt. Sometimes, it, look, these situations are are can be fluid. They can be quick. They can be uh, devastating for a moment and turn the next. Um, if you have enough just to defend yourself for a moment and get away, that could be enough. If you have enough to defend yourself for just a moment and then scream and, and alert bystanders to come and help you, sometimes that can be enough. It's not so much as you have to be able to flip someone from a sweep you know, uh, with your proper gripping technique and butterfly guard and then go to neon belly and, and then get a baseball bat choke in the back of a Dairy Queen parking lot. You don't have to do all that. You know, sometimes it's merely about creating distance separation and, and exiting the scenario as quickly as possible. You know, and of course, if there's multiple assailants, that changes things. If there's multiple assailants and weapons, well, that even changes it even more. At some point, the martial arts skills aren't really enough. Um, even being armed sometimes isn't really enough, depending on the circumstances. But generally, I think you could easily make the argument that the more of this you have, chances are the better off you'll be. No guarantees about anything. No guarantees about any kind of scenario. But some knowledge is better than none, and a lot of knowledge is better than some. And if you can live a life of martial arts, you can really tilt the odds in your favor in the event of a street altercation. And here's another perfect example of one. Ryan Hall has a famous video where I know it could be exactly the place that him and his team at 50-50 were eating. Seth Smith of... of um, of uh, Richmond uh, upstream BJJ was sitting at that table as well. So was Ryan Hall's wife and some other folks as well. I think Tim Corrin was sitting at that table. who's a brown belt under uh, Ryan Hall. And you see this drunk guy just bat, you know, just in their ear constantly, constantly, constantly until finally the confrontation turns uh, physical. I wouldn't call it violent exactly only because of Ryan's mercy and Ryan immediately took mount on the guy. You know, if you're inebriated and you're trying to pick a fight with a guy who's got vicious cauliflower ear, it's not going to go well for you, man. It's going to go real bad unless someone like Ryan has mercy. You can see these kinds of things. You have, you know, you don't have to be Ryan Hall exactly, but if you have deeply accumulated wisdom, it can do a lot for you in a lot of different scenarios. But there's no, there's no fail-safe. There's no guarantee. And certainly when we're talking about a size disparity and a strength disparity, perhaps someone has hopped up on some kind of drug. Uh, these, these make things difficult. But it doesn't undercut the need to have a life in martial arts. It doesn't really undercut the need even – for a weekend training seminar, right? These things you never know, man. They can they can really help someone. You know, if you can just find enough of a window to create some space and get away, to scream and get away, to control them enough to get away, uh, you can do a lot that can save your life. And I think that's important. It's like sort of swimming training, and you know, you don't need to be Michael Phelps or something or some kind of Baywatch lifeguard to be able to uh, potentially save your own life and someone else's.
Oh, by the way, back to the original question, this person says, the underlying problem I see is that it seems problematic as a moral and social species to have entertainment fulfilling some desire out of person-on-person violence. I'm not sure I understand why. I do not disguise that it is in our DNA, nor do I disregard other sports or forms of entertainment that I think fulfill similar requirements. It simply seems that combat sports are the highest form of this, and it's something that we should want to be repulsed by, even though I know I am not. See, I don't know why we would want to be repulsed by it. Repulsed by wanton violence, that phrase at the social fabric, sure. Uh, Someone punching a grandma in the street, robbing her purse. But government-sanctioned, regulated, presumably, let's say, even in a case like California or Jersey, well-regulated, within the boundaries and the confinements of uh, oversight, in some cases, meaningful oversight, um, this to me seems almost a good more than in some kind of ill. I'm, I'm not sure I understand um, this person's motivations for having a conflict. But nevertheless, very good questions that I hope I gave even some kind of a coherent response to. Uh, Tanya Evinger and the UFC. As I've always felt, there was a strained relationship between Tanya Evinger and UFC as much as one can have a power indifference like that. Do you think Evinger has a possibility to be recruited to UFC. I mean, she's got more than a possibility. It's not like they don't know who she is. And if she were to go to UFC, how would you see her succeeding there? She'd probably be very, very competitive at bantamweight. You know, I really would like to see what she can do to the Cats and Ganos. Misha Tate, of course, is gone now, but, um, you know, she might give Holly Holm a hell of a time, man. She really, she really might, you know. I think she'd be very, very competitive with the top of that division champion. I don't know, but I wouldn't count her out too much. Um but, you know, she just isn't the kind of fighter that I think they want or know how to promote or care to promote, you know. Uh, you know, she's a Diaz brother, only more problematic to an extent by, by their own sort of ways in which they navigate prom, you know, the promotional world. She just doesn't fit neatly in it, and it's unfortunate. And I'm not saying that's a good excuse to keep her out. I mean, if you're going to have the best fight, the best, you would like to see someone like Evinger have her skills and talent and hard work rewarded. Don't misunderstand me. But at the same time, um, you know, we've talked a lot about it. I think we really have to wrap our heads around what kind of cultural complexion, and I don't mean racial, I mean truly, like what kind of corporate culture is there in the UFC? What kind of corporate culture is there when it comes to fighters they spotlight for promotion? And what do they tell us about the values that the UFC really emphasizes and cares about and identifies? And I'm sure some of those would be a part of Tanya uh, Evinger's um, resume, but some of them wouldn't be either, you know. Um, And that's unfortunate, but that's the world we live in, you know, for now anyway. And unless there was some kind of, you know, Diaz has at least the ability to promote himself and his brand, especially off of that Conor McGregor win and loss. You know, he's got some kind of an incredible springboard. Evinger doesn't really have that, you know. Drinking my Starbucks virtue signaling water. Says helping children get clean water. Does anyone know if that's true or believe it? I just want some cold water. All right. Should Dylan Dennis call himself Triple D? Dylan Donk Dennis, or even better, Triple Donk. Triple Donk sounds like a Dutch beer. Um, 
What did you make of all of his, this is his words, not mine, stupid comments on the MMA hour? <laughs> yeah, uh, woof. people had a negative reaction to that, did they not? Someone also replies here, kid is a moron who also happens to be very talented at jiu-jitsu. He definitely is ducking Neiman. I'm sure he only wants to be matched up with those whose jiu-jitsu is not on his level. Well, I got news for you. Neiman Gracie's jiu-jitsu is not on his level. But I understand your point. Like it's not like a you know a massive world of difference. It's not like a purple belt versus Dylan. It's a black versus a black belt, you know. So but but just to be clear, Neiman Gracie is not on the level of Dylan Davis. Uh for him to say he doesn't know him is an outright lie. It's a small community. They both train in NYC and Neiman's father is a hero in the jiu-jitsu scene. Mauricio Makara uh Stambowski, one of the few coral belts in the US, number one BS guy. Yeah, he definitely knows who he is. Uh, he says he should be ducking Neiman, someone else says. Regardless of what you think of him, the first five fights should be easy. I agree with that. Someone else replies, he was even more cringeworthy in his submission radio interview, saying how if John Jones wants a fight with him, he means a grappling match, John is going to have to beg him for it. Then he later said of John, I think I've already picked on him enough, so I'll leave the little guy alone. Good God, a mannequin couldn't be a better poser than Dylan. Uh... And of course, someone notes the obvious. He's playing a game, guys. He's just talking crazy, so you pay attention. Yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing about this. Like Conor McGregor did a lot of this kind of stuff early, you know, of uh, proclaiming his greatness and his vision to the world, which is why he received a lot of blowback. But he also, if you note, it kind of ratcheted up over time too. I mean, there was a time where he was talking about, you know, getting the 50 Gs he needed from a bonus and having how good the blueberries were in that interview with with Ariel and that he was, you know, didn't have a pot to piss in and that he, you know, used to be on welfare or even was on welfare at some time during uh, his fighting career. He sort of noted all of those things. And so there was a bit of that hard scrabble story that he adopted to tell him, tell the world about his his own life. This one is like right out the gate um you know no vaseline just imagine a little bit of gasoline kind of scenario right it, it just there's no i mean there's a little bit of that horatio alger story of you know um i've had these dreams since forever i've been training hard i've been doing the three days that kind of thing you, there there was a little bit of that but it's just with connor it's number one it's a little bit more effortless and two he gradually ratcheted it up don't get me wrong he was throwing flames uh, from the word go, but there were other components that made it a much more complex story. This one just feels a lot less nuanced and a lot more in your face and, and not nearly as balanced um, as we saw from Connor. So I think it rubs people a lot the wrong way. Plus, there's a real question of like, who were you before you met Connor? And he claims that he's been doing this kind of thing forever. And maybe that's true. Again, I can't claim to know him. I don't know him. He, that, he might well be telling the truth. But um, if you know, I've told you, I've had limited interaction with him, but I never, ever, 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 ever got the sense that uh, he was, you know, anything like Conor McGregor, for better or for worse, when I had some interactions with him. If you go back and you, um, I mean, you can't really pick it up from, you can't really pick it up from the article itself, but if you go back to my technique talk on the rise of the guillotine, how people had made adjustments to the guillotine to make it work, Dylan Danis was featured prominently in that, and I had a number of discussions with him at the time, and let me tell you something, friendly, um, gracious with his time, interesting, no pretension about him. Do not misunderstand me at all. He was great. I have nothing bad to say about him. And here's the other part about this. Can we just talk honestly about this for just a second? 
look, man, how, how old is he? How old is Dylan Baron's? 23? Something like that? 22, 20, 24? What is he, this guy? Dylan Danis is... See, he was born in 1993, so he'll be 24 in August. All right, 24, he'll be in August, 23 years old. Do you know how many guys at 23 and 24 have no idea who they are and they're still trying to figure it out themselves? And they had the benefit of being able to do it um, as they made mistakes about their self presentation, but the world didn't notice until they had finally figured it out. And then maybe the world did notice. You know, not everyone knows who they are, they're trying to figure themselves out. I'm not saying he does or he doesn't. I'm just saying if in four years he's acting differently because he's matured, he's rethought things, you know, I wouldn't really hold it against them. I'm not really going to hold this against them. I'm not, you know, fans get rubbed the wrong way, then that's just how it goes. And that's fine. No problem with that. But all I'm saying is how many guys are watching this right now? And how many of you guys who are past the age of, let's say, 28, 29, how many of you guys did some things when you were 22 and 23? I don't mean actually acts per se, although that may be two, but certain kinds of ways in which you thought about yourself and presented to yourself to the world that you over time rethought, even if you had a measure of success afterwards that you thought was that you're just trying to calibrate what you show to the world. And I think when you're 22 and 23, often you can get that calibration a little bit off. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe this is who he is and we're, you know, this will be the guy we see for the next 50 years or something. Um, okay. Then if that's the case, that's fine. I'm just at least opening space for the possibility and I, you know, I said something similar with John Jones, but of course he has found ways to make that argument rendered moot. But I'm very forgiving of young men, and I, I, I might say the same for young women. I don't know young women in the same kind of way, sort of self-identification way. But I'm very forgiving of younger guys, twenty to thirty, somewhere in there, who are trying to figure things out and are having a limelight foisted upon them, and and may believe one thing about themselves at a certain age, and they may change that over time. And I think we have to allow room for him to evolve and be something potentially different over the next few years. Um, you know, if we're wrong about that, then we're wrong about that. But I'm not really going to beat the guy over the head too much for it. Does it rub me the wrong way? Like it rubs a lot of you the wrong way? Yeah, of course. It's not something I'm like, I find endearing. But I'm not going to get too worked up over it personally just because, you know, I want the guy to to live his life the best he can, figure out himself, and we'll see where he ends up. But it is off-putting. I will admit it is off-putting. Someone says, oh, we get it, but it's just too much. Zero MMA fights, amateur or pro. His Connor stick is double absolute cringe. I wish him the best, though. That's hilarious. Uh, Bellator NYC, hi, Luke. Are Vanderlei Silva versus Chael Sonnen and Fedor versus Mitrione really the biggest matches Bellator can currently make? What would have been a bigger match to put on for the first Bellator card in New York? I mean, there's probably some permutations that you could have made differently. I think uh, I had a reader reach out to me and say, why wouldn't they do uh, Rampage versus Fedor, right? This is something that would be, I think, a little bit more interesting to folks, particularly as, you know, Rampage might exit, you might not get them anymore. Um, you know, and I asked actually Bellator about this, and their answer was, well, it's the last fight of his contract, meaning... I don't know that they have a whole lot of faith that they're going to be able to re-sign him, and that even if he wants to re-sign, that people will care. Um, so they're just trying to make the best matches they can while also preparing for a future that tilts towards their interests. And I think you always have to keep in mind those kinds of things. It's not merely about X versus Y. What, in theory, would be the best? You might be able to come up with some better ideas. 
But then you get down to the nitty gritty and you have to realize there are things like we have a calendar. This person's owed a certain fight at a certain time. There are some payroll considerations. This guy is at this place on his contract. This is a guy we believe in and we want to promote. This is a guy we're not too sure of. Those kinds of things. And when you begin to get that, then the choices begin to narrow in ways that often aren't in keeping with, you know, the purest sense of X versus Y would be really an optimal fight, um, that kind of thing. So just always remember that. Um, that being said, if you have some fatigue about Fedor versus Mitrion, I understand it. If you have some fatigue about Chael versus Vanderlei, I understand that as well. Uh, I don't think these are in any way um, unfair criticisms. In the end, I think folks will come around to Vanderlei versus Chael, I think a little bit, but the Fedor one feels a little bit flat to me, I have to say. Now, I think the fight might be exciting. And maybe come time for the fight, there'll be a you know a Russian contingent there to support him. Uh, and this will all feel quite differently on the 24th of June. But as it stands today, I think I, you know, I, I see some real fatigue out there with some of these matchups. And um, that's a real cost that the that Bellator has to pay. For sure, no doubt about it. Um, so are they the very best ones? You know, you might be able to play around with some of these permutations and get some better ones. The question is, in reality, given all their various constraints. How doable are they? Um, often what you get is what is doable. And that's not as good as what you can get merely matching on paper. And never forget, guys turn down fights, you know. Bellator pay-per-views. Coker told, Coker said he would consider more pay-per-view if the fight is right, which fights or fights could carry a successful Bellator pay-per-view in your mind. And someone else actually responded, Vitor Belfort actually called out CM Punk for his retirement fight. Luke, can a person get any more despicable in the realm of callouts, than Vitor calling for CM Punk in his farewell fight. Can they get more despicable? Yes. <laughs> I mean, easily, right? I want to fight my grandmother. Well, all right. That's pretty f despicable. Um, this is a man who fought as high as heavyweight, calling out a welterweight who has no business even being in the UFC. I don't know what could possess him to say this besides sheer idiocy. So, yeah, I disagree. Now, look. Um, do I think it's absolutely ridiculous that Belfort called out CM Punk? I mean, of course. It's flat-out absurd. Flat-out absurd for him to do something like that. I mean, CM Punk doesn't even... I don't even need to explain that to anyone. That is truly uh, an outrageous thing to ask for. Um, except, in some ways, it's not. I mean, it is outrageous, right? But... Here's the thing and the catch. Fighters are getting the cue from others, fighters and as well as management and the fans, to be vocal about what you want. Now, we have this Overton window about what kind of matches are acceptable within this frame. And Vitor's mistake is not really realizing what that Overton window is or why there should be, a, or, you know, if you're going to go outside the Overton window, to make a really compelling case for it. His is a craven case, a rather lazy one at that. that. That's why ultimately this doesn't work. A commission may not even sanction it. In fact, I would recommend highly that they not. And it just feels so cynical. And ultimately it's not palatable. But the fact of the matter is, what's wrong here is Vitor's sense of the Overton window, the, the acceptable... Um, in this particular context, the acceptable amount of different fights 
that we would possibly allow for. And the center might be the most appealing at the very outside of the window, might be the very least appealing, but we would ultimately accept. That's your Overton window in this particular context. His, his crime was in not recognizing that. But like, if we're asking fighters to call out people, if we're asking fighters to call out people according to their interests, if we're asking fighters to call out people according to their interests, and the only real thing that prevents a fight from either being happening or happening or not happening is essentially the public response to it, why wouldn't he float this trial balloon? This is what you're going to get. You're going to get a bunch of this. Am I in favor of it? Like you, I find it outrageous. I find it totally outrageous. But like, <laughs> what do you expect a guy to do? Vitor's always had a weird sense about himself and what is possible and what should be allowed. Let's just always be real. Let's just be real about that. But more to the point, we're living in an age where we are encouraging fighters to go through these kinds of exercises. Did Vitor go through too far? Yeah, I mean, way too far. But I, we're, we're asking them to do this. We're enabling to do this. Am I so confused as to think that every time a fighter takes up this course of action that we have highly encouraged them to do, that every time they're going to give me something that I find palatable? Nope. They're going to get it wrong sometimes, and sometimes they're going to get it really wrong. But the only thing that really matters is if I float something to the public and there's a strong degree of support for it, that might actually get me what I want. And who knows? Maybe in his mind he thought, hey, I can get this to work and I can get an easy fight and I can go on my day and I can, you know, and I can dad bod flex and then go mow the lawn uh, with my 75,000 different haircuts that I wore at the exact same time. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm not like... It's not that I'm not mad at him because I don't like it, but I hate to use this because on the internet, everybody says this. Something happens, right? And there's inevitably some jack-off in every comment section who always says something like, are you surprised? You know, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the least interesting internet response uh, imaginable. But I guess what I would say is this is predictable and there's going to be more of it. Maybe not as craven <coughs> as Belfour's, Maybe not quite as bad as that. I admit it is, It is, you know, she's not even thinking about what the public could really want or what a regulator could even reasonably accept or what makes sense for the UFC's brand. All right. But we're asking them to do this, and they're fumbling through it a little bit. Some guys are better at it than others. Hey, you know, Yo Romero calling out Anderson Silva. You know I mean? It didn't really work, but it wasn't altogether an insane thing. You know, this one's a little bit insane. But... You know, if you push fighters to ask for fights and we reward fighters who ask for fights, this is what you're going to get. This is part of the cost you're going to have to pay for all of the fights that someone calls out and eventually gets, like the DKC, Kesey, whatever it is, versus Paul Felder. That, to me, seems like a pretty awesome fight that these two are trying to make in public. Okay, I can live with that one. That one sounds just fine by me. I mean, you might quibble with some aspects about it, but it doesn't seem out of bounds, right? This one's just crazy, but if all that matters is what you can get an audience to buy, why not try? Why not try? If they buy it, great. If they don't, I'll just try another one. Someone says, he didn't call him out, watched the whole interview, and his reply after the fans jumped on him for calling out CM Punk. All right, whatever. Even if he did or didn't, this kind of thing is going to happen either through Belfort or somebody else. It's inevitable. Uh, Gustafson versus Teixeira. I think this fight is flying under the radar a little bit. Yes, it is. How do you think the fight will go, and what are the chances that the winner ends up champion by the end of the year? 
Well, the the winner being champion by the end of the year seems a little bit far fetched. Although, who knows? But that one I don't buy as li- as likely. Certainly not by the end of the year. However, um, boy, this is a tough one. These guys are really, really, really well matched. Really well matched. Um, both guys have a great jab. Both guys don't get tired. Both guys, I think I would say Teixeira is a little bit better on the ground, but I would say Gustafson's takedown defense at this point is lights out. Um, both guys have are active combination throwers. Um, man, they are. this is a really, really, really well-matched fight. Both guys like to put pressure on their opponent going forward. This is going to be a tough one. This is going to be a really tough one. I think... Um, I wonder if Teixeira... Now, he fought Jared Cannonier in a safe way, which makes sense because he got knocked out real bad and he wanted to come back and get a win and show he was still good and he found a way to use his game where there was a clear differential in skill and he exploited it. That's just the way it goes. But you also have to wonder like, if that loss to Anthony Johnson has any lingering effects beyond the Cannonier fight. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But you have to always consider it. If that's the case, then if you're Alexander Gustafson, which you might have to be con- consider is... Teixeira might spend an inordinate amount of time in the clinch trying to take you down, in which case, no, does your takedown defense have to be on point, but you're going to have to find ways to sneak offense in on him in that clinch space that's going to make it count. That or your separation from him has to be great. If you're going to work behind the jab, then your activity level has to be higher than his too, right? You have to really you know, you have to really put it on him, but I think that clinch is where it's going to be won or lost. Gustafson's been pretty good in that clinch at times, you know, obviously giving Daniel Cormier a lot of problems too. So, um, so that's going to be an interesting one, man. That is a really great fight. That is great matchmaking. Two guys who could really benefit from uh, a win over the other guy, if that makes sense, because I mean, they're so credentialed and so well-regarded and so talented. Um, I'd like to see you know Gustafson win only because I think some rematches for him against some of those top guys would be great to see. He's a little bit younger. You know, Teixeira, I'd have nothing against him, of course, a little bit older, you know. Uh, but may the best man win. May the best man win. Um, CSAC's efforts on weight cutting. Luke, what did you think in general about CSAC's or the California State Athletic Commission's 10-point plan on curbing weight cutting? And what were the points that you felt were really promising or duds already at this point? Yeah, so um, on my YouTube channel, I had a, almost a 30-minute interview. Well, not quite that long, 25 minutes with Andy Foster going through virtually all of the 10-point plan. So if you want a bigger discussion about that from Andy himself, you can go there and you can listen to it. I think some of the things I like are for example, there, there are a number of solutions and everyone wants like this technological solution to things. And that may not be, you may be right about it. I'm not saying it's not a solution, but if we're talking about other ways in which we could solve it, particularly ways that take into account cost cutting, um, adding, you know, licensing by weight class, right? And then two, on a questionnaire that these fighters have to fill out in order to get licenses or get about approved, whatever the case may be, asking what you know what weight the fighter is going to be at and tracking a fighter's weight history through documentation. Have you ever missed weight in this weight class? And so, you know, when, how much? So that they know if you've missed weight twice at a lightweight and you're now applying for a lightweight license or a lightweight bout, they might say no, right? And if you missed badly or had to get taken to the hospital at some point, now they know. I mean, they might know this stuff beforehand, but now it's all documented as part of some kind of administrative attempt to handle those. I think those are really smart. I think a lot of commissions could do it. It's easy to do. 
um, and it's ready to go on day one. It's not very complicated. So, you know, the decisions that they ultimately make from it really will impact whether or not it's the most helpful policy. But in theory, you could see it being potentially very helpful and really easy to implement and not at a whole lot of cost. So that's a good thing. On the other hand, um, there were some things that they didn't like, which is if you come in over, initially it was going to be 8%, but the medical advisory committee bumped it up to 10%. So if you come in at 10% the day after weigh-in over your contracted weight or your weigh-in weight, um, then they'll let the bout go on. They won't stop it, but the next time you compete in that state, you got to go up a weight class. Now, part of this is just hard to implement because even if California says, hey, you you made a weight at 170 and now you're 191, you know, we're going to let this go through, but you got to fight a middleweight next time. Uh, you know, what if they never fight in California again? You know, they get away with it scot-free. So there's that problem as well, getting Nevada or New Jersey to borrow some of these rules or um, if not borrow the rules, even borrow some of the traditions that they're trying to employ. Hey, this guy came in over. I know he's going to fight in your state next to New Jersey. You know, we'd like you to, to make him go up to middleweight. And New Jersey's saying, okay, you know, that's, a, that's, that's another problem irrespective of this particular weight-cutting issue. But that 10% number is really interesting because if you think about it, what does that mean? That means if you come in at like 170, you weigh in at 170, you know, you can bump up to what, 187? That's a lot of weight you can bump up. But I know a lot of guys who might exceed that um, the next day. And so – Will they still cut so that they can fight at welterweight next time? Maybe. Maybe they'll just let it go. I mean, what 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 the struggle that Andy Foster is trying to work through is to what extent can we punish fighters um, and provide disincentives that don't ultimately force them to take risks with their health? yet have a real force behind them. In other words, how do we get guys to pay attention to our rules about, you know, you can't come in if you're a welterweight, you can't come in at, you know, 190 the next day and humanely allow for about to take place, but then have this real force in saying, I think this is the compromise he's trying to reach. Well, next time we're going to go up. But like anytime you add a punitive action to weight cutting, Anytime you add a disincentive to things, um, it's not clear how healthy that is for the fighters. Now, I'm not here to say that automatically I hate that 10% rule. I know some journalists came out right away were like, this is the worst thing ever. We don't know that yet. It might be. It might be. It might be a very bad idea. I'm not ruling out that it, it, that it is. But whenever you're like, people are like, you should do, you know, if someone misses weight, you take 100% of their purse, right? Well, then they're going to do insane things to make weight. You know, if you weigh in the one day and you weigh in the next day too much, we'll take 50% of your purse, right? Well, then they're going to go through and they're going to say, um, I'm just going to cut weight again and just take the risk going into a fight. I'll just be dehydrated on my fight. You don't want that either. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, I won't create this incredible obstacle that I know will force fighters to take serious risks with their health. The bout will go forward. But next time the weight will, you know, you'll have to fight at a different weight. Um, is that next time you'll have to fight up a weight, is that enough of a pressure to get guys to cut weight on fight day so they don't have to worry about that the next time? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that. I think we have some presumptions that it might be bad, but we'll have to see it let it, have to see it play out. That's sort of my response to this. I think that was the one that I really was concerned about. A lot of these other ones were like, 
you know, I mean, what, what he wants to do generally, Andy Foster, is to bring in the expertise of medical professionals uh, in as many times as he can in the initial licensing process uh, with hydration measurements, that kind of thing, uh, specific gravity tests. He wants to bring in medical science and medical supervision to the extent possible by creating enough disincentives to hopefully curb use of it, yet not create such a strong disincentive that it forces panicked, really unhealthy choices by fighters. And that is a very, very, very difficult way to go or uh, balance to try and strike. We'll ultimately see if he's got the right one. But um, that's the one I've got my eye on is that. And they're going to do other, you know, there's, there's other measurements as well. We're going to do a 30-day weigh-in, a week-out weigh-in, day before and the day after. You know, sort of the, the WBC model. You saw this with the Jacobs um, Triple G fight, things like that. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see how it goes. Someone says, I think the 10% rule can make a bigger problem if fighters decide to slow down the process of weight recovery. Yep. That is a real bad thing that could potentially happen. Now, they do have some room to play with. Um, you know, 17 pounds is not insignificant if you're at welterweight, right? Or if you're at 155, 15, uh, 15 pounds. These are not insignificant amounts, right? They're, they're, in fact, more than what it's recommended that you actually even cut. But, you know, guys cut a lot of weight. All right, the body triangle. I've always thought that the body triangle was the best position to have when a fighter has the back, but I see guys like Crone Gracie control and submit people by sometimes having only one hook in. What are the advantages and disadvantages of the body triangle, and why can it be high level guy? Why can high level guys such as Crone do so well without it? Well, I mean, this is a really this is a great question and a really easy answer to be honest, because what happens with Crone is he, I mean, sometimes he uses the one hook, but he primarily uses the two hooks, right? And what he's doing is he is turning you into a puppet, and his legs and feet are the strings. You are doing this, right? As he is the marionette. So when he has his hooks in on your hips and he doesn't have the body triangle number one he is like quite literally covering your hips but two more than that it's because he can turn you he can turn you different direction he can move you around he can move his body around you he can move you around his body he can create this mobile environment where your balance is disrupted you don't see attacks coming he can get you to go to a side he wants you to go to when you have the body triangle you are essentially saying i'm going to latch myself onto this person's back and that's it now, that's a great place to be. The back is an amazingly dominant place to be. And you can then, you know, batter them with strikes. You can you can actually do try to do the old Ivan Salivary where you stretch them out and hurt their lower back. You can control their breathing. Believe me, if you don't know everyone has ever had it on you, it sucks. It's a horrible place to be, right? It's got a lot of advantages, but it, what it doesn't allow you to do is to really move and control. And look, if you want to finish someone and you don't get the rear naked choke, you have to open up the body triangle. The body triangle is just a shutdown position. It's borderline stalling. The only thing, the reason why it's not stalling is because then from behind them, you can punch them and you can constantly go for chokes. That's the only reason why it's not stalling. But in a, in a manner of speaking, for the hips and the lower body, it's kind of a stalling position if you hold it minute over minute over minute over minute over minute. Now, if you hold it for just a second and you want to hurt them, and, or you, you know, again, if you're really using it to affect, it's not. It's a complicated debate. But Crone um, is so good. And so advanced that for him, the body triangle doesn't help him. It actually limits his game because he has such dexterity 
and such total command of your hips with his legs and his feet that by putting on a body triangle, he'd be taking away weapons. It just so happens, though, that most people can't do what Crone Gracie can do. Not even close. So for them, if they can get a body triangle, this is their apex level of achievement on the back. And it's a great level. Like, like there's nothing wrong with the body triangle. It's a, it's a fantastic weapon. And there is some movement you can do with it, but it's very, very limited. Um, Crone's just a beast. <laughs> Crone's just incredible. Uh, that's the, that's the long short answer of it. It's like, how does Demi and Maya get to the, you know, the mount so easily? I mean, cause his passing is airtight lights out ridiculous. It's the same thing with Crone. His back control is so good. His ability to transition from back to mount and maintain back, even while loosely having just sort of two hooks dangling over bro. It's cause his back game is one in a gazillion level. Good. There's just, there's a, there's a handful of dudes in MMA, and maybe not even that many who can do that kind of thing. And he can. Yeah, there's some good answers here. Biggest disadvantage of the body triangle is it limits your ability to move and adjust. There's some you can do, but very little. It provides way more control, so if you're good with it, it shouldn't matter. But, it, but if you have a loose body triangle and your opponent is able to adjust their hip, it may be more difficult uh, to readjust. There's that too. Uh, Frankie Edgar versus Yair Rodriguez. At first glance, I thought this was a poor matchup and Frankie would win comfortably. However, I now like Yair's chances. <clears throat> Mainly because he will be probably be able to match Edgar's speed. And the last person to do that was Aldo, who beat him comfortably. I'm not saying Yair is as good as Aldo, but I do think Edgar's. But I do think that's Edgar's kryptonite. How do you see this fight going? And how do you think their different grappling styles will match up? To me, it's a question of whether or not and how often Rodriguez can stop the takedown. I just don't see Frankie Edgar banging with him too much on the outside. Some, yes, inevitable, and he might even do well out there. But really, Frankie Edgar knows the key to this one is mixing up his game. And Rodriguez is a guy who, as long as he's on the outside, he's going to be jumping and flying and trying all kinds of things. You don't want to give that guy space to create. You want to get up in his face. You want to get on top of him. You want to control him against a fence or a canvas. That's really going to be your best bet. So to me, the question is to what extent Rodriguez can stuff takedowns. And some of them, I'm sure he can. He looks to be a large featherweight. I've never seen him. I did see it. No, that's not true. I saw him at the 197 event. I covered that one. I can't remember how big he looked. Um, but... That, that, to me, is really how this is going to go. How do you see this fight going, and how do you think their different grappling styles match up? You know, Frankie is really sort of a, a great grappler. You saw what he was able to do against Cub Swanson, who's a legit black belt. Um, Rodriguez is just so good at creating scrambles and trying things and making guys get around it. That is sort of gonna, what I'm going to wonder is to what extent can Edgar play a little bit of that scrambling game that Rodriguez is good about initiating, maintaining, and yet for Edgar, finding a way to not get caught, let's say, in a knee bar, and yet still keep dominant top space or find his way to the back. That's what I'm going to be really kind of interested in. I've never seen Edgar play a whole lot off the back. I'm sure he's got those skills, but it's not really what appears to be his interest or his forte. He's a lot. He's the kind of guy who likes to play on top from half guard. That's going to be harder to do against Yair Rodriguez. So this is going to be a big test, not merely of Frankie Edgar's takedowns, which we know are pretty good, but more than that, um, 
the ability to consistently stay in Rodriguez's face and to come out on top in scrambles as the dominant player. And you, you know, you have to always remember the guy who initiates the scramble more often than not is going to be the guy that wins the scramble. The guy who's going to be initiating a lot of those scrambles is going to be Yair. So it's going to be a real interesting test of Edgar's top control. Really interesting one. Looking forward to that. God damn, I'm thirsty. Question, you'll see Monopoly lawsuit. All right. Luke, I always enjoy your podcast. Thank you very much. With the antitrust lawsuit still ongoing, would it be reasonable to think that the UFC, whilst not in all cases, is allowing some fighters to be scooped <clears throat> by Bellator in an attempt to show they do not have a monopoly in the MMA industry? It's not as simple as, hey, look, guys, we're letting people go. We don't have a monopoly. It's a much more complicated conversation about what is and isn't a monopoly insofar as the courts are concerned. But yes, to, to answer the question generally, they're trying to show that the lawsuit covers a certain period of time, but they don't want to exacerbate their uh, liability by continuing any practices that the fighters are currently suing against. So, look, do I think that they feel like they can be just fine without Ryan Bader? I think that they do, and I think they think the same thing about Lorenz Larkin. Um, so, partly I think it's a response to that. Partly I think it's a response to... Um, you know, potential implementation of any kind of Ali Act, if that happens. I mean, I guess we'll have to see, but uh, simply, just, just to be clear, simply letting ranked fighters go wouldn't undercut the totality of the argument if there is such one that UFC is a monopoly. Like, if you can make a case for it, and now someone says, yeah, but they're letting ranked fighters go, that wouldn't disprove it. That It's a larger conversation that takes into account a huge number of factors. That would be one of them. Um, and yes, they are mitigating some of their exposure to the risk of those arguments by, by perhaps engaging in this kind of behavior. But just to be very, very clear about it, it wouldn't disprove it. It's not an either-or scenario. It's a little bit more of a balance of things. And whether or not all in totality they weigh up and give you this composite sketch of a group that is um, meets, meets some kind of a definition of a monopoly. Also, never forget, I spoke to Scott Coker yesterday. You can check it out on my YouTube channel. Um, it's not just that you have these punitive things coming down the line, where a potential Ali Act or this lawsuit or whatever the case may be. It's also that, um, and you saw some of this in my colleague uh, Ariel Hawani's interview with Scott Coker on Monday. Um, the Reebok deal is good for Bellator, apparently. Um, I think the sale of the UFC was a wake-up moment. Like, guys, you know, independent of whatever is going to happen with this fighter lawsuit and independent of whatever is going to happen with this Ali Act, fighters are fighting out their contracts. Fighters are looking to take advantage of a potential revenue opportunity. Um, so it's, a, it's not merely that these things are happening, the UFC is reacting, the fighters from the ground up are, at least in some cases, in some high-profile cases, are taking advantage of these scenarios to um, improve their own condition. So it's it's coming from both directions, and that's how you're getting this current predicament that we're in. But keep in mind, they haven't let a guy go who you're like, wow, that dude is a bona fide rating star. You know, they haven't, or a woman or whoever, they haven't done that yet. You know, keep that in mind. 
Marlon Moraes' possible signing with the UFC affect Frankie Edgar's plans to compete at Bantamweight? I don't think so. I have talked with Frankie extensively about this, and every time his answer is the same. Yeah, he might go to it. He might not go to it. If he got an immediate title shot, he would probably go. Um, and we'll see what happens with Marlon and whether or not, A, he gets ultimately like officially signed, and I suspect that he will, and then whether or not he gets a title shot. Uh, you know, if Marlon's in the title picture, it might complicate it a little bit, but honestly, I don't. Th- I think in the end these guys are not going to give up. I mean, they're teammates, but, you know, they're going to let whoever gets that chance first get it, I think. Mitrion's comments on sparring and MMA. I thought Matt Mitrion's comments about sparring and MMA were both intriguing and enlightening. Yeah. What parts of what he said do you agree with and which parts do you disagree with? So, um, I mean, I'm sure he said it in a number of places, but I spoke to him yesterday as well. What he said was he doesn't take shots to the head anymore, and he, don't, he doesn't always spar with boxing gloves because it changes your perception of distance, about what lands and what doesn't land. It changes the way in which you throw. So what he does is they don't go all out to the body anyway. Even to the body, they'll pull back a little bit. If they're gonna throw to the head, they kind of pull down and like and like land on the chest or something, right? That's what they do. Um, and he uh, he splits his camps between Indianapolis and the Black Zillions, and basically he said was he he just needs to preserve his head at this point. He just can't afford to take uh, any kind of unnecessary damage. You know, folks forget about this. He memorably had, you know, he was called Meathead on the Ultimate Fighter. Do any of you guys remember that he had a? Um, Man, I, I, it's crazy how we treat it. That uh, he had he had a bad concussion on the Ultimate Fighter. Remember, he couldn't, he didn't want to see sunlight. He was in the closet and he was vomiting. You remember that? And he got teased a little bit for that too. And of course, this is before you know. Not that our views now are terribly enlightened, but certainly they're more advanced than they were back then. Uh, low, low these many years. Uh, you know, this is a guy who had a life in football and a life in combat sports. I imagine he's had his bell rung a number of times. So. Uh, I think his answer is probably pretty good. Like, how much better as a fighter is he going to be by sparring? You know, he might learn some extra things. He might polish the technique a little bit better. But what kind of damage is he doing to himself at a time where he cannot afford to take any damage? You know, he's at right now peak earning potential. This is it right here. Boy, you do not want to mess that up. And you've been in this game a while. What skills are you really going to add? What's really the point? So that's what they do. That's what they do. And maybe that prepares him not as well as it could, but... You know, he's also not fighting the very best of his division. Fedor is certainly a legend, but I think we can all agree he's not really a top 10 guy. Um, so it's probably a good idea. It's probably a good idea. Without having implemented something like that in my own life, uh, you know, and, and f- having fought uh, professionally, I have no way of knowing if it's it's a great response, but intuitively it, it seems to check off a lot of the boxes of a smart adjustment, you know. Um. Donk. What does the word donk mean? It is short for donkey. It is short for donkament. If you play poker and you get these idiots who saddle up to the table, a donk could be a number of things, but often what it is, we get these donkaments, which is a, a change in the word for tournament. It's just these idiots who go all in who have no idea what they're doing, but they'll eventually get lucky. You know, it's the 7 2 offsuit of people who just happen to have a two pair when you only have one, that kind of thing. But they're they're not good at it. They're just idiots. And eventually they over time they, you know, they they lose. But um, I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it more in the sense of sort of a polite way of, you know, it's not exact. It's not, it, it, look, it is definitely not calling someone an idiot. Like if you're going to call someone an idiot, you just call them an idiot. It's sort of a polite way of, it's the most polite pejorative I can think of, right? It is the acknowledgement of 
someone else's deficiencies, but perhaps in a very pleasantly teasing kind of way, right? That's what it is. Jean Pascal calling out Nick Diaz. What do you think of this? Not much. No, could not have less interest in this. And if UFC allows Connor to have a mega fight with Floyd, could they get problems with other fighters like, for example, the Diaz bros if they want to box too? Yep. Yes, they could. Could this mega fight backfire with the UFC and bring them other problems? Yes, absolutely. It looks to me like what they decided was that contract provision, which they could have enforced, or at least tried to have enforced, they said, look, rather than just going to court with our biggest star, why don't we just let this happen and take a cut of it? Right, let's just do that. I think that's the plan they're headed for. Um, but I don't know that they would reserve that for any old fighter who wants to try it. They might give old McGregor the benefit of the doubt. I don't know that they'll do that for anybody else. In fact, I have pretty deep suspicion that they won't. Um, they would actually then try to fight it in court and see what they could get out of it. So, yeah, this could this could create a, a number of problems for them. And here's the, here's the truth about that. They may go to war in court with another fighter to stop them from doing this, but what if they then lose? You know, I mean, at that point, I suppose maybe the dominoes falling were inevitable, but that would be quite an L to take, would it not? Here's another Dylan Danis question. Luke, you spoke very highly of him and mentioned you wish to see him achieve more in BJJ before making the move to MMA. Were you disappointed at his loss at Pans? A little bit, not much. How hard did you laugh when he called himself the highest paid athlete in Bellator? I more just sighed. I don't know if I laughed. Do you feel better about him achieving his potential after hearing that he still wants to win the world? Yes. And that, that is his priority right now? Yes. What do you see happening at SUG 4 match with Jake Shields? Uh, probably a stalemate. Jake Shields is, a, I think, a bigger guy and not to be trifled with and very good no-gi. Um, the Worlds would be a gi event in May, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, you know, I think Shields will be just fine. I expect it'll probably be, well, I guess they have those EBI rules. Those EBI rules make it hard to figure out exactly who's going to win, but I suspect at least the initial match will be a stalemate. It'd be hard, it'd be hard to see Shields lose that one in that context anyway. Uh, UFC and potential Justin Gaethje signing. Boy, people are hyped up about the old Gaethje monster. If you were a UFC matchmaker, who would you book him against for his first fight? Would you rush him to be the top? Would you rush him to the top quickly? I'll tell you who I would fight in a perfect world. Who would I have fight? I'd have Gaethje fight uh, Michael Chandler. To me, that's a little bit more of a guaranteed action fight than, than a lot of other ones. But uh, sure, man, there's a lot of different ways you can go. You can put him, I mean, just here's the top. Here's the top. Listen to the top 15 of lightweight. Masarindu by Francisco Trinaldo. And forget the order, just the names. Al Iaquinta, Gilbert Melendez. Evan Dunham, Kevin Lee, Benil Dariush, Dustin Poirier. That'd be a good one. He's fighting at the Alvarez, right? Nate Diaz. That'd be a great one. Michael Chiesa. That'd be a super good one. Michael Johnson. I'd take that too. Edson Barboza. That would be ridiculous. Rafael Dos Anjos. Uh, well, he's at welterweight, I guess. Eddie Alvarez and then Tony Ferguson. So to me, a Barboza, Johnson, Chiesa fight right in that sweet spot. Those would all be pretty, pretty excellent, right? It's a good question. Is the Bellator pay-per-view worth it to you? 
this has to be the biggest card Bellator has ever put together. But I, I asked him about, I asked Scott Coker about Kimbo. Like, why did you go with Kimbo? Kimbo was like a much bigger star than these guys. His answer is basically he thought Kimbo was a TV star. That if you put Kimbo on TV, kaboom, all the magic happens. He seemed less convinced that if you put it on pay-per-view that it would be, um, that it would do well. Um, the other interesting thing he said about that was like, you know, you have to put a card together. It's not just a main event headlining fight. And he didn't feel like he could put together enough of a card back then to sell on pay-per-view. He does feel that way now. So that'll be interesting to see. But um, even at the reduced price of $49.95 or whatever it is from the average UFC price tag, the fights just don't get me excited. Sure, the names are big in the sport, but intrigue on the main and co-main bouts are way past their worth in pay-per-view viability. The better fights, in my opinion, are the Chandler and Lima title fights, but it's something I'm used to getting on free TV, so that's a tough sell. Do you think the card is worthy of being a pay-per-view yourself? I'm not sure how that... Does that mean if I'm Scott Coker, do I try and put this on pay-per-view? Probably not, but that's a... You know, whether or not I want to give up 50 bucks to watch it is a different question. I have no, even then I probably wouldn't do that. Um, I have no doubts it will surpass the 100,000 buys of their first endeavor, but I'd be surprised if it hits 300,000 or more. Agreed. How high would you estimate the pay-per-view numbers on this? I'll say 200 to 250. I think closer to 200, but one never knows. Even that might be very high. Maybe it's much closer to 100,000 again. I guess we'll have to see. Um, to me, it's very, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, I, I cannot recommend this enough. And in fact, if you don't want to wade through the, uh, the, what's the word, the technical language he goes through and some of the meteor arguments he's made about it. I keep talking about this guy, please, please get familiar with him. You would, it will change your perspective on a lot or certainly, uh, inform it in interesting ways. Ben Thompson of a psychologist from Techery. And he has been very, very clear about, you know, how and why um, certain subscription services work and why paywalls work and why they don't work and which ones work for what reasons. And he's got this total command of the business models. And he has been very clear that, and I've talked about this before, that if you have a pay product and you add free elements to it, that's fine. But if you have a free product and then you add pay elements to it and those pay elements are the best of your product, right, that's why they're being paid for, then you have a problem on your hands. It's going to be hard to solve. Certainly not insurmountable. But it's difficult, and this is one of them. It's not a question, even even if there were a pay-per-view company first and they gave free TV out after the fact, that'd be one thing. But just sort of evaluating whether it's worth it to me to pay for pay-per-view when you know you have to ask yourself in a, in a calendar year how many of these you want to buy. Generally, UFC or Bellator, is this the right one for you? Like These are very, very difficult questions to... Um, these are very, very difficult challenges for a promoter to... to, to, to try and seek out given what they've already done and how they've branded themselves and how they generate revenue. But look, here's the truth of the matter. You know, these guys don't come free. And if you want to compete with the best talent, you have to find a way to generate revenue that putting fights on spike, it doesn't look like in a current form are going to be able to, to generate the kind of revenue prestige or size that they need. They want to compete. I think with UFC, not to, you know, not directly today, not directly next year. It's a long process, but over time, they're not in this to be, you know, someone's afterthought. They want to be, you know, you know, major players in this space more so than they already are. And pay per view is, insofar as I can tell, unless there's some other revolutionary way to get there, is the best way to get there. 
Um, it's just that they've branded themselves as a non-pay-per-view business in a world where there's already a lot of pay-per-view demands made on fans for a company that doesn't have what you would typically look at as a roster of ready-to-go pay-per-view stars. That's a lot working against them, but um, we'll see how they do over time. Look, man, if this, if this clears 200, I would consider that a substantial win, a substantial win. You know, uh, That's a lot of money they could generate. That'd be a big hill to climb for a pay-per-view to get past the 100,000 buy mark. It would be a major, major win for them. Major win. Is Eddie Bravo getting crazier? You guys keep up with him in ways that I don't. I find his insights on jiu-jitsu to be phenomenal. I find the things he says in jiu-jitsu to be phenomenal. I think what he's contributed to jiu-jitsu, both the presentation of it with EBI, as well as his thoughts on things that worked and developing his own innovative style, I have nothing but praise for him, and I think he's a very bright mind, but I don't really pay attention to the other stuff. I try not to. Maya versus Masvidal. Which is most likely to happen with these two? A, Maya wins by sub. B, Maya wins by decision. C, Masvidal by KO, TKO. Or D, Masvidal by decision. I will go with B, Maya via decision. I think that Masvidal's submission defense is really good. And uh, I don't think he's afraid of Demi and Maya. I don't think he's afraid of having his back taken. Uh, and I think he'll be able to survive. Fabricio Verdum versus Luke Rockhold. God. Verdum and his team are saying this isn't happening, but hypothetically, how do you see this fight going? Uh, I just think Verdum's too big for him. You know, Verdum could probably take him down, um, beat him up in the clinch. He'd just, be, he'd just be physically too big for him. Would Luke Rockhold have enough of a speed advantage to pull it off? Yeah, but maybe, but Luke Rockhold has a lot of, you know, as you saw in the in the Bisping fight, he's got some distance management issues. And I just think I just think for you know Verdun would be able to get Verdun would just be able to take away a lot of his strengths and impose his size. And I'm not interested in that fight at all. I'm sure Luke Rockhold is, but your boy ain't. Here's a good question. Scott Coker winning the fans over. I get the sense that Scott has won many fans over with the recent signings and bookings similar to the way he did with Strikeforce. That's where I disagree. What are your thoughts on this, and does it put pressure on UFC to sign guys like Gaethje and Moresh? Yeah, it does, but here's the interesting thing. Um, I don't know where you were when uh, Strikeforce was purchased by UFC. I remember exactly where I was. I was supposed to go to a family outing, and then I saw the news, and I realized immediately that MMA was different now immediately like I had a major I one of those moments I was like whoa this is seismic this is a seismic moment in the history of the sport and I saw Ariel's interview with Dana White and everything else and um I remember distinctly that there was a lot of trepidation about what it meant who's going to benefit who's going to lose what's going to happen what does this mean for the industry but there was one common sentiment on the positive side and the positive side was you know what finally Finally, we're going to get to see who the best is in these divisions. And we all know all the great guys that came from Strikeforce, from Overeem to Cormier to Woodley to Rockhold to Gilbert Melendez. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on. And for a time, you really did get to see that. And I remember towards the end of Strikeforce's reign, towards the end of um, even before the purchase, really, 
Strikeforce's roster had ballooned to a size, or grown anyway, where people looked at it from a very jaundiced point of view. Not that they, you could say, man, these guys put on great shows, but that they had, because they were still less than the UFC, um, people looked at them like, you guys are an obstacle to this dream scenario of the best fighting the best. And I remember, again, some people were very upset about the Strike Force purchase, but I do remember there were a lot of fans saying, you know what? If there is a good side to this, we're going to get to see all this. And for a while, you did. You know, injuries were, of course, a common problem after that, too. But, you know, you, you got a lot of that. I mean, that, that was a major acquisition, and you got to see a lot of top 15 fight each other. Now, look, Bellator is nowhere near close to what Strike Force has done. But while Strike Force got labeled as something of an obstacle to progress, Bellator is now being positioned as a as a uh, agent of progress. You know, man, it's really great. Not really to see fighters get paid more, but look, they're building something with that welterweight division. This is great. Man, look at it. Look at that light heavyweight division of Bellator. They're really building something over there. This is great. Now, look, maybe the difference between what Bellator is getting in terms of attitude and what Strikeforce got in terms of attitude is merely the scale of growth. Maybe if Bellator keeps get gaining on UFC, and understand very clearly, we're not talking about if you really measure their gains, they're fairly modest, but perception-wise, they're important. And if they keep going like they plan to, maybe they'll get enough of a roster where they'll compare to Strike Force, and then all of a sudden the narrative will change. And well, what really what the problem is with Bellator is that they're an obstacle to progress. But it's just very interesting to me. It's like I don't really compare them to Strike Force because Strike Force was seen very much as an impediment. It was seen very much as, oh, you know, yeah, it's a good product, but, man, I really wish everyone was in the UFC. This was a pervasive attitude. And now what you're seeing is something quite different. You're seeing something with Bellator like, you know what? This is beginning to become a real alternative, whether it's true or not is a different scenario. I'm just saying that kind of that kind of popular sentiment. So that, to me, has been a real big difference between the two. Um, we'll see if that holds up, but, but I've noticed that. All right, it is a little bit past 2.15. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Lima versus Larkin, who you got? I got to go with Larkin on this one. I think he's truly one of the best welterweights on earth. Um, Lima's good, but I, I think there's going to be a big speed differential. I really believe that, and I think um, pretty handily uh, Larkin's going to be able to take advantage of that. And, you know, Douglas is good on the ground, but Larkin's... Um, Take on the fences, lights out. Let's see how he adjusted that circular cage, but I think he'll be all right. If they make Korean Zombie versus Lamas, who do you think will be a favorite to win? Boy, that'd be a tough one. Uh, Lamas, little meat and potatoes, great wrestling. Korean Zombie, you know, hard hitter, um, good submissions. I'd probably go KZ, but that's a, that'd, be, that'd be a great, great fight. Let's see the least interesting internet responsible imagine wait the, the least interesting internet response imaginable might be first oh on a comment section yeah that's one of them also how do you respond to the claim that philosophy is just conjecture with no facts data support any of it well i mean the only people who say that just know nothing about philosophy like there is a huge portion of philosophy that is the scientific method is philosophy uh almost quite literally um these are profound questions about our existence. These are profound questions about how we live our lives. Um, 
these are important to figure out our priority. And once you have a philosophical basis for something, you can begin to, to create policies, right? Um, any, anyone who says something like this is just sort of, um, you know, understanding, I mean, having a grasp of what knowledge is, what our proximity is to it, and what that means is critical for uh, navigating through life. That it may not have necessarily the same amount of quantitative load work as uh, some other kind of academic pursuit might be true, but ultimately irrelevant. Uh, it's not guys just sort of mentally masturbating about ideas that have no real value to our lives. It is quite the opposite, right? If you think about things like animal ethics, and then you sort of look at the state of uh, agricultural farming and how we handle this and what our ethical responsibilities are and what that would mean for policy. That is one uh, area of looking at this. You can look at this depending on your pro-life or pro-choice stance, right? To what extent is this a human life? If it is a human life, when is it a human life? What kind of human life is it? Is it a kind that deserves rights? If so, what are those rights? Where do those rights come from? What is the basis by which we can ground those in some kind of ethical and moral framework? Um, these are the most profound questions of human existence, quite literally, right? How does training with Vasily Lomachenko help Dillashaw? Well, Lomachenko is going to compete in a very different way, but this, I mean, how could training with him not benefit him from um, finding an elusive target to uh, making himself more elusive? As he, there's a couple times you could see where he was reaching on shots. Uh, Lomachenko changed the angle on him and got him. So, you know, those kinds of, the, the ability to anticipate angles, uh, responses, and to adjust your style as a consequence, you know, what kinds of weapons you can use against a fighter who does this and what kinds you can't. Um, you know, just sharpening your boxing skills generally, uh, all, all those things, I think, would be a tremendous benefit. But Lomachenko is really good at timing, angles, distance, um, and particularly angles. I think that he's really, really gifted at just turning on a dime to get out of the way, a real economy of motion when he when he moves. So um, that should be fun. If you guys haven't seen it, it's really good, actually. LeVar Ball is more entertaining than Chael in 2017. LeVar Ball, can we please feed him to piranhas? What? Why? Why is it illegal for us to feed Lavar Ball to piranhas? You see the video of him playing that rec league. I mean, honestly, your arthritic, pre-diabetic uh, neighbor could dunk on him, much less Michael or LeBron. By the way, did you see those wizards? So that these are conference champions for the first time in thirty-eight years. Holler at your boy. Uh, has Chael jumped the shark? It's sad to see him doing that tired act and media feigning interest. I have to say, I wasn't feigning interest. I thought it was hilarious. You got to be honest. I was sitting in this room. You have to understand something about the modern MMA press conference. And if any folks from Bellator are watching, please listen to me. I know some folks complain that they don't like the new UFC thing where they bring in a star and then bring in a star and they bring in a star rather than having everyone up on the dais. But the problem is, if you're going to get one-on-ones with people, this is why the UFC doesn't really do pressers like they used to. I mean, they do the big ones where there's like tons of people on the stage, you know. Those are fun. But like a typical week, okay, during a fight week, particularly pre-fight, if you, and this I know it's not fight week, it's not till June, but it's the same kind of thing. I'm going to get one-on-ones with these guys later. I'm going to get a one-on-one with Chael. I had Chael in studio. I had Michael Chandler in studio yesterday. I spoke to Scott Coker, Matt Mitrion, Lorenz Larkin, Douglas Lima. I spoke to all these guys one-on-one. -on -one. So why am I going to waste my questions in a 
larger format. I mean, there's a couple of them I wanted to ask just because I'm just die, you know, ants on the pants to know. Um, but that's the major problem with this. So they got, there's a, there's a, there's gotta be a better way to do that. Now, when you have a press conference like that, um, you know, it comes from boxing where, you know, you might get a scrum with a guy after the fact, or you have such limited access to them that any kind of question you can ask them at any juncture is really hugely valuable. But to the credit of promotions like UFC and like Bellator, they give you such unfettered access to these guys that it doesn't really create an incentive for me to ask a question at a press conference if I can just have my own one-on-one with him after the fact. So I don't know what the answer is exactly, but it's got to be better than what we've got. So what happened was everyone was on the stage. Um, there, there was a lot of media there in terms of multimedia, like a lot of TV crews and things like that, but there wasn't a lot of print journalists there or, you know, Typing journalist. I think me and Ariel were the only ones who were using cameras. Um, the New York Post was there, but he was just, you know, cam- uh, not camcorder, but like, you know, uh, voice recorder. So I had access to everybody, uh, which is great, but it doesn't, it just, my point being is Chael was up there trying to make a show. And maybe you think that show is stale, and that's fine. I'm not here to, like, I'm not the president of the show. It's Chael's show. You can like it or not, but. All I'm pointing out is it was there, there are, you know, when you get these events like this where everyone knows I can just wait 15 minutes, I'm going to get all my own questions with this guy. Chael was trying to create an atmosphere and he's trying to sell a pay per view. So if you don't like this stick, that's cool, but at least understand where that came from. Uh, me quoting Ice Cube's No Vaseline on the live chat was the best moment ever. I'm glad you think so. Thank you. Uh, do you think the UFC is waiting for McGregor to return before finalizing a full Bisping versus GSP card? Um, I doubt that. I think what they're waiting for is to figure out what where it fits best in their calendar and what these guys are willing to do. I don't think they want... I mean, maybe, only in the sense of they don't want to double up anything close to that to get away from it. If that's what you mean, then yes. But uh, otherwise, no. If you were Coker, and I'm not, who would be the next current UFC fighter you would target? No champs or ex-champs. Joe Duffy. Easy call. Uh, in fact, I asked Michael Chandler about it yesterday. He would, uh, you know, he, of course he's going to say this, but like I detected a real degree of enthusiasm on his part to potentially face Joe Duffy. That's a very easy call. Joe Duffy has not shown us his best yet. I suspect his best is, his best is very good. It would be not only good for Bellator to have a guy like Joe Duffy in their stable who is a legit lightweight, but more than that, could potentially be a star for them as they move more and more into the into the UK and Ireland, separately Ireland, or, you know, Northern Ireland is not, but Ireland. Um, um, he could be incredibly valuable to them. And imagine if he was a champion, you know, having an Irish Bellator champion and lightweight, and you had an Irish UFC champion, boy, what a statement that would make, huh? That would be big. So if you're Scott Coker, and he didn't confirm this to me, but I would imagine that Joe Duffy is heavy on the radar. Going on with Ben Askren. He's got a fight coming up. I'm not sure when, but he has a title defense coming up. But yeah, I don't know, man. He just seems much more interested into um, the world of wrestling, real wrestling, than anything else. And I don't blame him. We, we all F this up. And UFC not taking him was so... Can you believe that they actually said he should go to World Series of Fighting to get some experience? I mean, it is truly one of the most pathetic things ever. Really, just... 
it's not my regret because I didn't make the choice, but insofar as I have this sort of general regret about what has happened in MMA, not getting Askren into the UFC to me seemed like, man, he'd even be good right back in Bellator, to be honest. You add him to that stable with the Limas and the McDonald's and the Larkins and everyone else, it would be tremendous to have him in there, you know? Um, all hope is not lost. And, you know, if he's making money in one then and they're good to him, then that's awesome thing. But, man, what a lost opportunity. Mm. What a lost opportunity this has been. Given recent UFC cuts to ranked fighters, is there any chance UFC puts up enough money for Moresh and or Gaethje? Sure. Sure. I wouldn't be surprised if they signed them both. Yeah, of course. How do you think these welterweight matchups go down? Magni Nelson. Ooh. Or Cowboy Wonderboy. Boy, those are good ones. Man. Um, Magni by a, by a hair. Cowboy Wonderboy. I have to think about that one. I'd have to think about that one because on the ground, Cowboy would be way better. Could he get it to the ground? I don't know, you know. Um, but that's a great question. That's a really great question. I have to think about that one for a little while. Um, how many of these Bellator fights, I'm assuming you mean, will actually happen? The top two fights have already been canceled before. What's the backup plan? As I understand it, there is none. And it's in New York. And again, I asked Scott Coker about this. He's like, the bouts have already been approved. You know, so... There might be some extra testing that's involved, but they're they're confident we'll go forward. All right. I guess we'll see. Look, your thoughts on just calisthenic calisthenics workouts, not the BS half-ass CrossFit ones. Ask Alan Thraw. He'll know better. Does Bellator have a plan B in the case of Chael, Vanderlei, Fedor, or Matt getting injured? Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, True-false. Rampage finishes King Mo. False. And then last one. Has the Reebok deal been a success from the UFC's perspective? Has the money the UFC has made justified fighter unrest? I'd have to ask the UFC to, to get a real sense of that. My sense was that part of the reason why they made the Re Reebok deal, we talked about this at length, is you know, a certain amount of control over the industry is important. Um, but the other one is that they wanted to sell additional sponsors on top of it that they would then be able to benefit from. I have not seen a lot of evidence that that has happened. Now, maybe they're waiting for the next set of Reebok kits to come out before they really do that. Maybe the next, they're waiting for the next chance they can to sign an apparel sponsor. You know, I don't know how long that deal is supposed to be. So I guess we'll see. It's a long-term investment. Are they, are they, are they, this moment in time? Probably not a lot, but I think that they're thinking it's a long-term play. And over time, this will be a, a short impediment that will ultimately prove um, the right call. All right, guys, thank you so much for watching. One more time before I forget, which I don't want to, please go give Judd Lively a follow. Give that guy a follow, all right? Could not be a nicer guy. You can see his name right up here. Give that guy a follow on Instagram. Judd Lively. He's the one who made the t-shirt design and could not be a nicer human being. He could really appreciate your help. Let's give a guy who did something for everyone here um, a little bit of a thanks. So thank you, Judd. Let's give him a follow. Uh, give this video a like. Share it. Subscribe to MMA Fighting's YouTube channel. Always feel free to comment as well. Not that I need to tell you to do that. And uh, thank you so much for watching. I'll have this on iTunes and SoundCloud here very shortly. And until next time, thank you so much for watching. And, uh, oh, stay frosty.